Professor Chopra, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me on. So you once realized that you were literally thinking in Facebook posts. So what was the story behind this conclusion and how did it change your thinking? Uh, you know, I remember describing this to you when we first talked and the way I experienced it and I remember describing this to you as a Facebook post was I'm walking down the street and I have an encounter with a young woman who's talking on her phone and maybe taking care of her dog at the same time. And I walk, and as I walk down the sidewalk, I have a kind of a mental reaction of irritation to her doing this. But what I found myself doing was actually composing something like, you know, like I think people used to call this vague booking back in the old days where you would write something extremely vague on your Facebook status. And then right. your friends were supposed to chime in and say, hey, what are you talking about? And uh, and so my 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 little line that was running through my head was something like, that's right. You just keep on walking with your head on down and I'll step to the side, right? And I was almost like impatient. I wanted to get somewhere, write it down and then sit back and wait for responses. You know, somebody would say, oh yeah, the same thing happened to me today or somebody would laugh at me. And I realized, as I said to you, that what I was looking forward to doing was running home because I, I think at that time I didn't have my phone on me. Otherwise, I probably would have started composing it on my phone was to quickly get home and to start writing this and to, as it were, give some raw material to the Facebook machine, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what I, the conclusions I drew from that was that there was something interesting about the presence of these social media systems, which was that they had almost turned me into, you know, quite self-consciously a content producer for them that so, as it were, stimulative and addictive were those constant beeps and colorful likes and notifications and, you know, people laughing at my posts, that it was in some ways producing a certain kind of feedback system on my part that was very well attuned to the world. And that was now starting to look at the world with a different lens. The world was now raw material. It was raw material for tweets and Facebook posts. And what I really had to be doing was to be on my lookout for things that would come up and things that would find their way into Facebook posts and tweets, and then ultimately serve to get me likes or get me positive feedback or get me certain kinds of reactions that would be you know, perhaps stimulative of my ego in some ways. And I think one conclusion, another further conclusion I drew from that is that very frequently when we speak of technology, we normally just keep on speaking about changes in technology. You know, what's the change in the technical technological system? And I think one thing that this prompted in me was the feeling that it's not just the systems that are changing, it's that we are changing in consonance and in accord with them. So 10 years down the line, it's not just that the systems will be different, it's that we as users will be very different. So it's not like we're going to remain the same, you know, we'll remain the same while our machines keep on changing. Nope we'll be changing as well. So the kinds of the kinds of feelings that we'll be having about these machines will be very different and they'll be very different for the kinds of people who grew up with them, right? There are so many threads I want to touch on um, from this initial starting point. So I did read your latest Wired article about ah, um, thank you. the, the AI, and, uh, AI and how minds work. Um, and so the literal words of our feelings towards AI systems, I, I want to touch on maybe later in the podcast. But I think the first important thing to note is that you're not Gen Z. 
you you are an older generation i won't age you uh you mm-hmm. know, at the beginning of the podcast but okay. that means that you adopted the technology and you weren't born into the technology right mm-hmm. and and yet uh, the technology being facebook and social media and such mm-hmm. and still you are having your brain we re- uh, rewired Mm-hmm. by these social um, social media algorithms, these platforms. What does that say about the power of these social media algorithms and also the vulnerability of our minds to these kind of hyper-stimulating um, algorithms? Yeah, uh, I think that's a good point. I, you're absolutely right. I didn't grow up with this technology. In fact, if I start telling you how late I came to the technology, you'd actually be surprised. The first time I ever wrote a computer program or even used a computer was at the age of 20, right? Oh, wow. So, I mean, I'm definitely dating myself here when I say that. Um, but yet, there is something seductive about the technologies. They provide functionality. They provide entertainment. You know, I used to be a homesick international student. So for me, Usenet news groups, email, conferencing systems, bulletin board systems, these were a lifeline. These were genuinely addictive for me. I used to finish my grad lab work and stay up till late at night, you know, talking to people all over the world because that's how you got companionship. And I do think that for a lot of people, and I think they say something about the societies we live in, I think people are still very lonely and isolated. I think this is one of the greatest ironies of our social media age that we sought out social media as a way of reducing the isolation and the lack of human connection in our lives. And I think in many ways, social media is actually rather than making it better, it has exacerbated it for some people. Mind you, there are lots of people who have benefited from the kinds of connections that social media has given them. But I think there's there's a a corresponding um, section of people as well who have been alienated or in some ways made isolated. But to go back to the point that you were originally quizzing me on, I think it says something about the pervasiveness of these technologies. I think it says something about their ubiquitousness, how much they are present in from morning till evening and that has only grown right i mean you know nowadays i mean you know it's, i'm i'll be honest with you when i wake up in the morning my hand reaches for my smartphone which is on the counter yeah. and i grab it and then i start moving right in fact mm-hmm. i remember one designer of one of the social media systems said he says you're either you either check your phone before you piss in the morning or you're checking your phone while you're pissing. Mm. Right? And that says something about how, how in some ways these systems are very much a part of our lives. And I think the smartphone is especially quite exceptional because it combines communication with entertainment, mm-hmm. right? And if you think about how much of our life, and I think once again, this is the reflection of the society, a lot of people are doing boring, dead-end jobs. A lot of people are lacking social connection. This is the one thing that gives you a kind of connection, right? I mean, there's so many moments in our life that are just dull and monotonous and boring, right? Well, why not pick up the phone and just doom scroll or yes. you know watch YouTube shorts, right? In some ways, so it's. I think it's also speaking to that lack in our lives. For sure. And, and if I may, just for the conversation, uh, if I may push back on that, is it that our lives are boring and monotonous or that these devices give us more stimulating content? Content, Or is it, is it a mixture of both? Because I think it's what, both. I, 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 I think so too. Yeah. I think it's both. I think, you know, and if I were to speak of my personal experience, 
when I became quote unquote addicted or drawn into these into these systems, you know, going all the way back to I would say 1990 was, you know, when I when I you know when I first got on the what used to be the proto web at that time, which was essentially BitNet, which is you know a giant network of email connections, mm. was that you know I was lacking company, I was isolated. International students didn't have that much social contact with, you know, with local communities. And the net was how I found people to talk to. And the net was how I found like-minded people. So there was something in my life that was making me seek out a technological solution for it. And of course, the worry there is that once you get into that, into the arms of that particular technological solution, you might actually even find that more attractive than the real world, right? right? Or it might right. might draw you away. Or it might, as it were, in some ways, provide an easy alternative to the messy complexities of face-to-face -face interactions, right? Um, in some ways, online interactions can be much easier, right? Yes, um, yes. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, I am, I've been a great booster of online work and social networking and computer-mediated communications, because I do think it helps people. It helps people make connections. It helps some people express themselves in ways that they cannot in public forums. You know, there's some students who are very shy to speak up in class, but they can write very eloquently online, right? So I'm not like the kind of person who says face-to-face -face is always better, right? Or that face-to-face -face brings out our true personas because I think there's always a mask on no matter what we are doing with somebody. But I think the pervasiveness of the technology and the fact that it's present as a solution in many more social situations than it was before has made it much more likely that we are going to find ourselves affected by it right and one thing that we are well, more than one thing but one particular thing that has caught the, the mainstream hype is chat gpt and this kind of explosion of ai systems and i'll mm -hmm. explain why i'm putting ai in quotes but sure. just before that uh, is our current notion of intelligence appropriate or not? Because it seems like, again, with the explosion of AI systems, we're kind of in this gray area of thinking about this is not what we expected true artificial intelligence to be. So, so what are your thoughts on this? So, you know, um, I think that's interesting when you say we're not sure whether we have a handle on what intelligence is. I mean, or rather, I would say that we don't really have a good handle on what true or genuine or real intelligence is because it's a term that's used in so many different ways. I've actually seen, uh, you know, the president of the American Association for Artificial Intelligence, he gave a talk once where he said, we shouldn't be speaking of intelligence. We should be speaking of intelligences, that there are many kinds of intelligence, right? There are many kinds of capacities that come under the capacity of intelligence. After all, what is common to my knowing how to open a tin and to writing an essay, right? They seem like very different activities, but there are certain kinds of problem solving in some ways, right? So I think one thing that ChatGPT and most of the other AI systems have done for us is they replicate certain kinds of human capacities. And we take those human capacities, when we think of them, we think, well, they're the kinds of things that an intelligent person would do, or that task would take intelligence, right? So we might say, well, playing chess requires intelligence. And then we make a machine that does it, right? So then we say, all right, well, is the machine intelligent, right? And then what people do is typically that they'll take one step backwards. They'll say it's not just the completion of the task, but it depends on how you do it, right? 
So I think this actually shows that there are two kinds of AI going on. Hmm. One kind of AI is what I call engineering AI. Engineering AI says, look, our job is to simply make machines and systems that can do things that human beings think require intelligence to do, right? Making coffee, playing a chess program, or writing an essay. These things require intelligence. If we can make a machine them, that does them, it's artificially intelligent, right? Another strand of AI is what I would call the cognitive science strand of AI. That says something like, how does the human mind work, right? And we want to study how the human mind works because this is a paradigmatic example of a system that produces intelligent behavior. So what I want to do is study how this system works, figure out how it works, and then replicate its workings in some other medium. Right? And this is committed to the claim that whatever human intelligence is, it is multiply realizable. That is, if I could uncover the abstract principles and instantiate them in some other system, then I would have an intelligence system. Right. So, for example, flying is a very good example. Right. Birds fly. Mm -hmm. Right. And we could call that natural flight. And if I say, well, we want to have artificial flight. Right. That doesn't mean that I make wings and have feathers and stand on a cliff and jump off. What it means is that I study the abstract principles of aerodynamics, lift, thrust, gravity, force. And then I find materials and systems that can do that for me like planes, planes are made of aluminum, they have jet engines, they have long runways, but they fly, right? That's because we think we have discovered the abstract principles of flight and we can instantiate them in some other kind of medium, right? You won't see anybody saying about planes, well, they're not really flying. I mean, all they're really doing is powering up their engines because we agree that they're flying using the abstract principles of flight, which birds also use, right? I mean, if you saw a bird flapping its wings, right? A physicist would say, ah, it's trying to get the right kind of lift, right? Now the flow over its wings is now, is now aerodynamic, right? So the same principles are there. But there's a third kind of AI that I think sneaks somewhere into the picture, which I think people don't are, people are not fully explicit about it, which I think is not even artificial intelligence. It's about making artificial persons. Yes. And that I think is a very different, most people when they're thinking of sci-fi AI, what they're really thinking of is artificial persons. Are they conscious? Yes. Oh, can this thing taste chocolate? Does it know what a sunset is like? Yeah. Does it know the difference between good and bad? Well, what's the connection between that, all these qualities and the intelligences that we were talking about? right? Or the intelligence that we were talking about. So I think somewhere in the middle, these, what happens typically in the, in the discourse surrounding AI is that people are moving between these three kinds of AI and not ever clarifying which one it is that they are assigning to this particular system, right? I mean, we have robotic systems that can explore planets, right? We don't think of them as intelligent for whatever reason, but they are, you know, they're out there, they're exploring, they're, they're autonomous, right? On the surface of Mars, this thing is making decisions on its own. Hmm, I've made a certain sighting, I'm going to go there, right? That's one kind of system. Then we have systems like ChatGPT, right, that produce certain kinds of output. But notice in each of these cases, this was the point of my Wired essay, we know what is going on underneath the hood, right? 
And as a result, because that reductive understanding of these systems is available, we find it easy to say something like, well, all it's doing is prompt completion, right? It's just a stochastic parrot, right? But we don't know that much about how our minds work. So we are more inclined to grant ourselves certain kinds of qualities. I have intuition. What is intuition? Well, intuition is, you know, the ability to look ahead five moves or something like what does that mean we we don't have physical counterparts of these claims that we make about human intelligence so it's easy for us to say that our intelligence is special our intelligence is different whatever these machines are doing that's not us yeah right so, so i think there is a classification problem in trying to understand ai right now as well so the ais that can make coffee that can write essays um we, we normally and i say normal loosely uh, we normally classify those as narrow intelligences, mm -hmm. narrow mm -hmm. AIs. Is that a good starting yeah. point? I think I think that's a good way to put it. That's right. That's right. And I would say something like in that category, someone would say um, designing a robot that can make coffee in your household is one level of sophistication. Yeah. What I really want is a robot that if it was taken to a strange person's house and dropped into the kitchen, it would still know how to make a coffee. Yeah, yeah. So it would say coffees are, coffee and tea normally tend to be placed together in these cupboards mm -hmm. that are over the cooking range. And coffee makers look like this. That thing looks like a coffee maker. Now I need a water source. Where's yes. the water source? And so what it's doing is it's applying a kind of, it's applying a kind of knowledge that spans different domains. It finds itself in a different domain, but it applies the knowledge from the previous domain to this one, right? So, so wouldn't that, I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here because mm -hmm. I know we're constrained for time, but would that mm -hmm. not be classified as general intelligence? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, so, so we right now have narrow intelligences that, you know, recommend us YouTube videos, for example. That's and, right. Yeah. You know, um, a Siri is an example, or, or as that's a bad example, actually. But we want a general intelligence that can recommend us YouTube videos, but also drive our cars as a, mm -hmm. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's right. So that's right. where in this conversation do we ascribe these AIs or robots rights? And do we, mm. do, do we ever ascribe these AIs and or robots rights? Okay, so uh, the, okay, this is this is, a, this is a deeply philosophical question, and I think the correct way to start answering that is, what do you mean by a right? This is the way philosophers typically answer questions. They say, what do you mean by that, right? And I think the first question is, what do you mean by a right? A right, in the legal sense, and I'm leaving aside moral rights for a second because moral rights are something that human beings will argue are kind of abstract in some ways. They're they're independent of humans. They already exist. I would say a legal right means that if somebody violates this right of mine, there is someone I can go to complain about that violation. And then that authority will step in to, as it were, help me continue to enjoy that freedom, right? So if I say I have a right to free speech and you shut me down, then I can go to someone and complain about it, right? A right also means that I have a certain kind of power that I am allowed to do certain things without interference in the exercise of that power, right? 
Now to step back a little bit more, that means I am in a position to do certain things, right? And I've been granted the power by the legal system to do those things. So here's a very powerful and a fundamental right, which is the right to enter into contracts, let's say, okay? Children don't have the right to enter into all kinds of contracts, for instance. They're human beings, but we don't allow them the right. For example, my daughter cannot buy a house. You have to be of a certain age. She cannot vote, for instance. She doesn't have the right to vote. So there are human beings that because of certain maturity requirements are not allowed to have certain kinds of rights, right? We don't allow them to do certain kinds of things. They cannot drive cars, for instance. So notice that the moment you allow an, an automated system to drive a car, you're granting it the right to drive a car on your roads, right? So that's already in some sense, you know, when someone says, when will these things have rights? I'm like, they already have rights. Mm -hmm. They're already doing things, right? You buy things from programs. Programs sell things to other programs. You know, it's it's kind of amazing, but as far long ago as 1996, when e-commerce had started on the net, legal scholars started asking this question, can programs enter into contracts? Are programs legally allowed to enter into contracts? You know, at 10.30 at night, you go to Amazon and you want to buy a copy of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, you pay the money to Amazon.com and on Saturday afternoon, the book is in your mailbox. And not a single person at Amazon.com knows that this transaction has taken place, hmm. right? But somebody has sold you a copy of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. The guy at the mailing room received a little sticker that said, take that copy out and put it in the box. And he did it, right? Who's doing all the work? Who has agency in all of this? When was the contract made? This is a kind of a puzzle if you think about it, because if you take existing contract law, it's not quite clear when the contract was formed, sure. right? So it's a bit of a legal puzzle. But if you address that, you're essentially addressing the idea of whether these programs have the right to enter into a contract that binds the person who put the who put the program up on the web, right? You know, if like if like I buy Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment from Amazon, the corporation is bound by its program to sell me the book. Hey, you took my credit card number. Give me the damn book, yeah. right? And that means the program has the right. You know, uh, we use this example in our law book. Back in the old days, in the really old days, during the Roman Empire, um, people could own slaves, right? right? Those slaves were not considered legal persons by the system of law right? because they were slaves. But they could go to the market and they could buy things for their family. And if they bought something in the market, then that contract used to bind their masters as well, mm -hmm. right? So they were considered the agents of their principles. And in you know, and in the book I I wrote on a legal theory for artificial agents, this is one of the moves that we suggest that look, these programs are doing things in our society. They are already changing facts about our society. You know, these currency exchange programs they trade billions of times a day with other programs, right? So in some sense, we have already given these programs the right to enter into financial transactions, to approve or reject loans. You know, when you go apply for a credit card or a visa with some countries now, you don't talk to a human being. If, if you were to apply for a visa to go to Australia, you could apply for a visa at 11.30 at night and get it. I've done it. It's a program that does it for you. You don't talk to a human being. That means the immigration ministry has given that program the right to grant visas to enter Australia, 
right? So I would say in some sense, when people are talking of rights, what they typically mean is civil rights, right? Free speech, the right to vote, but there are lots of other rights that programs already have. And so one of the things that I think is a task that already confronts us now is programs are already doing things, right? What kind of legal status should those programs have that adequately protects us human beings and also the corporations producing them, right? So I would say legal agency is a very good example of this. You give the contract, you give the program the right to enter into a contract, right? But legal agency means that you only have those rights that your principal has given you. So for example, let's say I'm a transit driver for a, for a public transportation company. Well, whatever I do on the job, my transportation company is liable for. Mm -hmm. But once I turn off the bus and start walking home and I'm off the job, the company is not responsible for me any longer. So if I go into a bar and have a fight, you're not going to sue the public transportation company. Right. But you will sue the public transportation company if I'm drunk and then drive a bus and hurt someone. Well, right? what, what are the ethical ramifications of giving AI and robots rights? Is, is, that, is that a step that we want to take? Or is that a step that we would eventually have to take if, and again, I'm referring back to your article, which we'll link in the, in the show notes, by the way, but you were saying that this could be a step that is kind of, and I'll, I'll paraphrase, but more subtle if we're growing up with, um, with robots that mm -hmm, we kind mm -hmm. of won't even make a conscious decision. Like, you know, on September 18th, this robot doesn't have a right, but September 19th, it does. It would just mm -hmm. be, I'm giving this robot a right because I've grown up with it since I was four. So, so when right. do you think this would happen? If it does happen, would it be when a technology like ChatGPT, just to give uh, an example, becomes so, um, so advanced where we can't possibly just say, oh, it's a stochastic parrot. Oh, it's just, you know, relying on the statistics and whatnot. Would, mm -hmm. would that be the case? Or what are your thoughts on this? I think it'll actually be along the lines of as we start to grant more and more quote unquote responsibility to the programs. Mm -hmm. So you notice right now, the program is kind of on a leash, right? You log into uh, OpenAI's website, it restricts you to a certain number of queries, right? Um, after the initial release of ChatGBT, there was a big hoo-ha, so they kind of reined in the program, placed certain restrictions on it. But what you have now is a kind of a proliferation of these large language models into these specialized apps. Right, which are being trained on different kinds of testing data sets. And what's slowly happening is that, you know, for example, you might have an integration of something like a GPT tool into Microsoft Word, right? So I'm like sitting down to write, I pull out a new file and says, you want to write a letter? I'm like, yeah, I want to write a letter. And it generates a letter for you. And you just kind of tell it what you want it to write and it does it for you. Now, what's slowly happening is that in that sense, the large language model has been plugged in as a module into an existing system and it's enhancing the functionality of that system, right? And I guess this is what is gonna happen with large language models increasingly. You know, you, you're already seeing this in some robots that have been equipped with large language models. So it, the large language models generate control scripts for them and then they use those to actually power the, the robots. So I think one thing is that slowly they will, might be what I would call either a pervasive spread of these kinds of 
large language models under the hood, right? Kind of tucked away in little macros, little apps, right? So it's all of a sudden like, it's not like I have an advanced G AGI in front of me, but I have little parts of my life that are being automated, right? Just, you know, like I said, visa granting to foreign applicants started 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, they use a simple kind of a data scoring system, right? If your name is this, if your background is this, then you get a certain number of points. And if the points increases, then we'll give you the visa, right? But notice what's happened is that a delegation of power has taken place. There was a human being. After all, there used to be some clerk sitting behind a desk that used to say, all right, Mr. Prakash, uh, why are you going to Australia? How long do you want to stay in Australia? What kind of visa do you want? And if you get us, all right, well, I'm going to approve your tourist visa for you, right? Now it's a now it's a program that does it. Mm -hmm. So what so in some sense, the power of the official has been delegated to the machine delegate, right? And I think what's going to happen is that slowly this kind of delegation will become pervasive, mm -hmm. right? You know, you go to a restaurant, you might have this little iPad at your desk, you place the order from there, you don't need a waiter, right? And you could have robotic waiters or something right. like that, right? But I think, and I think you're right, there's a kind of a slide into a situation where or we're, one day we wake up and we notice, huh, there's a lot of work that's being right. done by programs around me. There's a lot of things and there's a lot of, in ways, people kind of stepping back and opening the gates and letting the programs out to play, so to speak, right? Letting them behind the wheel giving them certain kinds of responsibilities, taking certain kinds of human interaction and human supervision of them, not just because we're lazy, but because sometimes in some cases that's faster, mm -hmm. right? So after all, yeah, go ahead. Oh, please finish. No, I was going to say like, it's actually, it's a, it's a combination of both wanting that functionality and also in a certain sense, realizing that the whole point of doing research on these systems was to make it possible for certain kinds of functionality to be available that we didn't have before, right? Otherwise, why, why develop these kinds of systems, right. right? And the true functionality lies in their ability to do something that you might not have been able to predict. Right. Right. So, so when you're saying, for example, we're giving AIs the right to drive, we're mm -hmm. giving AIs the right to uh, automate the decision-making process and whether I can get an Australian visa or not. Right. In my mind, this is not AI's getting rights. This is like a, a societal consensus of, sure, let's just automate those processes. Mm. Let's give, mm -hmm. let's give the, let's just reduce the complexity of the process and just make it easier, more efficient. Mm -hmm. So when we say, or when I say at least, when would an AI get a right? I think what I'm referring to is when would we be able to say, okay, this AI is an agent. It's acting mm. on itself and for itself. This is why we need to give it a right. Ah, very good. Very good. Very good. So actually, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you phrased it in the, in the sense of agency, because I think that's the genuinely interesting question out here. And I think my, my essay in Wired Magazine affects that directly. All right. Absolutely. And I think that's why it's not so much a question of just the agents or just the system's functionality, but how much we understand about it mm -hmm. and how much in some ways the language of agency helps me understand the system better. 
Okay, so there's a here, here's a quick little philosophy lesson that you might remember from your philosophy of mind classes. There are some kinds of systems in the world that I can predict using only physical language, right? I think I use this example when I talk to you. Here's a glass of water. If I drop it, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. That glass is going to break, and my and my nice little carpet is going to get wet, right? This is something I can say about the glass based purely on its physical properties, right? My smartphone is a little different. I have to talk about it in terms of its design qualities, right? If I press this light, this bright light comes on because there's code similar to a plane. The plane behaves in a certain way, but I can predict all of that using aeronautical engineering and physics and some maybe some things about code, right? When it comes to human beings, right? The paradigmatic example of an agent, I cannot describe human beings in terms of their physics or just their biology, right? If someone said to me, Ayush is a final year medical student. Tomorrow is his final exam. Where is Ayush? I'll say, well, he's a good student. He's probably in the library studying. Why don't you go look for him there? And the guy goes, yeah, he's, he's right there. Now, if I try to describe you in terms of neuroscience, it would have taken me five books to describe your neuroscientific state that day and another five books to come up with the physical calculations of where this set of neurons would be that evening. Right. It's impossible. Forget about it. You need supercomputers to do this. But I have a simple psychological reckoning in my mind. That dude wants to get a residency and he's a real OG and he's going to be in the library. Sure. So go look for him there. Yeah. This is all psychological language. What you want, what you believe, what you desire, this allows me to predict your behavior, right? When we get to that point with programs, when I don't know about what their systems are doing, what the, what the calculations are, but when I can say, man, given this kind of input, this thing is going to say that as an output. And when it starts to make sense to believe or starts to make sense to interact with that system, and you find that the best way to describe the interactions is in psychological language, mm -hmm. is in the language of actions, beliefs, desires, then I think you have gotten to the point that you are dealing with an agent. This doesn't mean that I've opened up the system and found a box that says the agent light is on. That doesn't mean that there is something I have found in human beings, the agent apparatus, which I also now find in these systems, what I do know is that with human beings, if I want to make sense of your behavior, I will use psychological language. And if I want to make sense of that system's behavior, I will use psychological language as well. Right? So then Lex Friedman was right when he said that we won't, we won't necessarily need to fundamentally replicate consciousness in a machine or in a robot. We will just need to mimic it. And mm -hmm. then we will ascribe it all of these traits um, as you were saying, creativity, intuition, all, all, all intelligence, um, all, all of these traits, because the mim the act of it being able to mimic um, consciousness would be enough for us to just say, okay, well, it's it has agency, let's let it be. Right. You see, when you are describing something as a copy or a mm -hmm. fake, right, that means you know what the authentic thing looks like. Right. Okay. Oh, right. If I say to you. Right. This is a fake Dali or this is a fake Da Vinci. That's because you know what real Dalis and real Da Vinci's are like. Okay. But in the case of human consciousness, all I can say is I'm conscious. 
Mm-hmm. And I can, and I'm pretty sure that you're conscious too. See, but that's the thing you're not. Because you sure are behaving like a conscious person. But the philosophical zombie then comes into play. And that's something mm-hmm. that I'm kind of toying with and struggling with as well. Because on the one hand, we're saying, okay, well, we can mimic conscious in a machine, consciousness in a machine, and then we can ascribe it consciousness and everything is okay. But on the other hand, we don't even know if the people we are talking to are conscious. Because we have, exactly. we have no um, way to test that. No, no definitive way. Yes, yes. What we do have is inference to the best explanation. Right. Right. You know, for example, I, in, in my essay, I say this, I'm born into this world. I see other human beings, right? And I say, huh, when I pinch this guy, he says, ow, mm-hmm. right? If I throw hot water on him, he does the same thing. I wouldn't do that to anybody. Um, <laughs> if I was to give someone a bar of chocolate, let, let's use a slightly better example and say, yeah. and he goes, hmm, that's a mighty fine hazelnut. I would say, yeah, that's exactly the same exam- response I would have, right? And then I think, well, I have this inner world, right? Of sensations, feelings, tastes, and all these kinds of things and colors and so on and so forth. This person is behaving just like me, right? And he looks like me or looks enough like me, he must also have an inner life like me. So then we are already doing the mimicry. Yes. And as I said, in that essay, I said the best way to make sense of human beings is to anthropomorphize them. Right. Right. Does, Does this notion scare you that we could get to a point where machines would either have consciousness or be mimicked or be able to mimic consciousness? Is this a kind of, um, to use again, a, a term that's thrown around very loosely, but a singularity in your mind? You know, um, I think in some sense, one thing really good that robots and AI have done for us is that they've made us re-examine the way we interact with other humans. Right. Right. And I think this is a good example of that. We are in some ways not even sure definitively whether human beings are conscious or not. We don't know what consciousness is. You can't open someone's brain to see whether they're conscious or not, right? We don't have that kind of neural correlates. Aha, that light is on. Therefore, this person is conscious. We don't have that kind of system. Um, And if you often think about it, um, when you are in a deep relationship with someone, if you're in a personal relationship with someone, we frequently have this feeling that, we don't really know what's going on in this person's mind or head. What did they really feel? And I think that's when that epistemic gap becomes very clear because the closer you get to people, the more you realize just how remote you are from them. You know, this is one of the greatest ironies that you're with someone you've been in love with for 10, 15 years and you have this relationship. It's like, man, I hardly even know this person, right? Because you realize just what depths there are to human beings. And how little is actually out there for you to see. Because you know, I am very conscious of the fact that the world sees very little of me. Right? There's a great deal that's going on inside, right? In some ways. So I think in some ways, we're already confronted with that. The familiarity, the resemblance of human beings to us makes it easier for us to deal with that epistemic gap. But this is a very fragile balance. I mean, all our racial discord, our cultural discord, our ethnic problems, 
people look slightly different from us. And we're already convinced that they come from a different planet. Oh, right. black people. I mean, who knows where they come from, man? We're confused. Or brown people, right? Because they look they look a little bit different. We're suddenly not even sure whether we are part of the same community yeah. because they look a little bit different, right? So I think there's something interesting going on here, which is that if there are systems, you know, like sometimes in these Android movies and sci-fi, you have this kind of this kind of illusion that look, these androids are giving us what we want. They look a lot like human beings. You know, they can even, we can even have sex with them or we can, uh, you know, like in Westworld, we can wreak our violent fantasies upon them, right? right? But I don't think that's, it's disturbing because right now we from our vantage point know that there is something called an android that is an artificial being that is different. I have this kind of side knowledge of it. So you and me having this conversation about androids is with this knowledge that androids are in some ways manufactured, synth synthetic, different from us. Right. But what if you didn't know? Right. What if you didn't know? And I think that's yeah. where the pervasiveness, the ubiquitousness, yeah. the that story, Robbie, of this girl, Gloria, who's growing up with this robot. She doesn't care. Robbie takes care of her. Right. And remember, when we were children, we were brought up by our parents to understand the difference between us and animals and different kinds of people and who we were supposed to be friendly with and who we weren't supposed to be friendly with, right? You, you know, this this almost feels like it's going to become a kind of Santa isn't real um, event in a child's life or in a teenager's life mm -hmm. where you kind be, of, yeah. you know, you pull the curtain back and say, you know, this robot is actually... It doesn't understand you. There's nothing there. It's just built like this. And you talked about this same kind of um, event where the parents were taking Gloria to the factory and saying, you know, this is the how showing. it's made. Yeah. Yeah. But because they yeah. wanted to rip the curtain apart, right? right? They wanted to pull the curtain back and say, look, we know something about it. Yeah. And Gloria is completely unconcerned. Yeah. Because for her interactions, that knowledge is completely irrelevant. Right. So, so would, so, so Gen Z are the digital natives, would Gen Alpha or Gen Beta, if that's the next generation mm -hmm. in line, if they continue to use the same kind of phrasing, nomenclature, would, yeah. yeah, nomenclature, would, would they be the robot natives? Would, would they adopt robotic technologies and then also not suffer uh, for lack of better words, but be affected with this notion that I don't really care whether the robot actually has a mind or not. It's helping me. So I'm going to continue to interact with it in the same way. Yeah. I mean, you know, after all, remember, these are things that we as cultures have valorized over a period of time. Yeah. Right. Because these are very important to us, right? We're, we're trying to establish ourselves as you know, creatures with souls, perhaps, you know, we have a certain kind of relationship with God. We've been created by this God. We have a special mind. We're so different from nature. We are, we are higher than animals, uh, but we're not quite gods yet. We've been very, very, we're so concerned about carving out a special place for ourselves in nature. You know, we right. are special. We are different. We are distinct, man. There is something really different about human intelligence. And somebody who might grow up with this kind of quote-unquote intelligence around them they might say something like man i don't know what you guys are going on about like consciousness and the soul and all this nonsense stuff that you've never actually seen mm -hmm. right it's like you know 
you you guys used to talk about gods and angels and spirits and then you gave up belief in that and now you keep telling me about consciousness and souls and all this kind of stuff what the fuck do i care yeah right it's like you know sometimes when your when your friend is dating someone that you don't like right you say man you can't be dating this guy he's an asshole he does x y and z and your friend says who gives a shit yeah this guy's nice he takes me out and does x and like abc what do i care if he's lacking in these qualities that are so special to you yes maybe they're special for you they're not special for me yeah they're not like a, you know like my daughter might have a friend in school and i might not like that friend mm-hmm. right this kid's an asshole but i was like i don't care he plays really good volleyball he's going <laughs> to yeah. help our team next year yeah. what do i care right so i'm going to keep him on my good side it depends upon the kind of relationship you have right and the values of one generation and one culture might not necessarily be that of those cultures to come and follow yeah you know i think a very good example is the difference between verbal and visual cultures we are of a you know perhaps an older verbal culture is very concerned with literature words how we manipulate words then we entered perhaps a more visual age right where perhaps people were more concerned with trafficking and images right and we think oh there's nothing great about this art this art is bullshit or it's like you know or it's you know it's like you know the way people used to diss hip hop right oh it's not real music you know they're not composing music they're just using samples they're just using beats and people are like i don't know man you can dance to it you know and you can like tap your feet along with the beat so the fact that it doesn't count as classical music doesn't really matter to me yeah maybe that's really important to you yeah but it's not to me right? it, it it's i mean your your um what you said earlier in the conversation of mach- uh, technology is changing us and we're changing technology and technology is changing us I, that's on full display right now um it, the, the same way that the iphone has changed so much about us which we've mm-hmm. then changed so much about technology because again the iphone changed us then we started creating apps to fuel that change exactly. into the yes, iphone yes, very much which so. then changed us even changed us even further it feels like a negative feedback loop which again gen alpha i think are going to grow up with a technology like the vision uh the apple vision pro or the, the headset which is even going to exacerbate these problems even further but again i know we are constrained for time so i just have one more question for you um this is the gen z diplomat podcast so what advice do you have for gen z you're so full of knowledge and wisdom and just your understandings and the way that your your mind works is so fascinating and so what mm-hmm. what do you see as a problem for gen z and how how would you recommend that we fix those problems or at least bridge the gap to to get those problems solved you know i uh i heard a very smart um uh, this was in the new york times technology uh, podcast uh, hard fork where they invited teenagers and high school students to write into them about the presence of social media in their lives and there was a young woman in there who said something really smart she said you know these systems are just everywhere we can't escape them i have to use a smartphone i have to use some kinds of social media she says what i have to do is in some ways get smart about is to get knowledge you know the the, the oldest line of all get knowledge yeah like understand how these systems work right understand what their incentives are and understand what your incentives are and she says something really smart she goes i realized 
that the stuff I saw on my feed was a function of how I interacted with the system. So for example, if you see something that has a lot of comments and then you go to read the comments, typically you can pretty much be sure that those comments will have a lot of negative feedback in them, right? There's people getting ratioed, people getting dumped on, people getting trolled and all this kind of nonsense. Well, the more of that kind of comment that you click on, the more of it you will see on your feed, right? So yeah, control your feed, hit it with likes and thumb downs and thumbs up. Stuff that you really like, yeah, emphasize it. Stuff that you don't like and find it disturbing and you don't want to see it, hit don't like on it. In some ways, learn how to, as it were, make the make the make the technology work for you by understanding how it works. Right. So, you know, I would say the first step in any self-help advice is educate yourself. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Learn how these systems work. Learn what the incentives are for the people who are making them. Right. For example, it was very, very clarifying for me when I understood the way interfaces were designed and the kinds of ways in which systems sought to keep you there. Once you understand what the attention economy is, right? Yes. The most precious resource you have is your attention. Because every time you are attending to something else, you are not attending to yourself. Right. You know, people don't value themselves. This is a huge problem. They don't value themselves as content producers. They don't value themselves as people who are actually giving away their precious attention to these people. And I think a lot of it has to also, you know, this is a psychological claim to make. If you value yourself more, if you have more pride in yourself, if you have more pride in what you have to offer to the world, you're not going to run around thinking that these systems are going to be the ones that are going to save you. Right. You're going to think of these systems instead as, man, what can you do for me? Not like me logging in and saying, please show me something that entertains me, right? right? It's like, I'm here for the system to get what I need, right? You go from being the slave to the master. That's right. You have to make the system work for you. And the way to make the system work for you is to learn how these systems work, educate yourself, learn what their capacities are, because any tool has the capacity to be able to help you, right? In some way as well. I mean, I, you know, I think social networks are a good thing. We should be connected to other people the way in which we connect to them is crucial. And that's largely a function of education, mm -hmm. right? And making, and I think, you know, that that girl really impressed me because she said, you know, I have changed my feeds completely, right? If stuff makes me feel bad, I don't want to see it, yeah. right? That's claiming agency for ourselves, right? Beautifully said. Professor Chopra, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I, I hope that we can talk again in the future because we have much much more to talk about tons more um, tons more thank you thanks well, for having where, me on today thank you for being here just before you go where can we find you on the digital realm uh so i'm not on any social media but i am uh, i have a website it's just plain and simple samirchopra.com sure. um so if you go to my website you'll find links to my books links to my blog uh there's tons of material there uh the stuff that i publish i you know, I put it on online there and my, my essay on Wired Magazine will go there pretty soon. I'll, I'll, I'll put a link up there as well. So yeah, I think just go to my website. That's probably the best jumping off point. For sure. And we'll make sure it's in the show notes. Professor Chopra, thank you so much.